May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words to life, our God. Amen. If I was to say to you uh, words like power, wealth, wisdom, might, honour and glory, what comes to mind? How would you describe those words? Turn around, have a chat to your neighbour for 30 seconds. Sorry, the powerful words. Wealthy politician. Wealthy politician. <laughs> yeah. It applies to everyone because we have different um, wealth that we have Yep. Very good. Any other answers? The scope of God. Scope of God. Right. Well, just hold that and we'll come back to it. Uh, We've just heard uh, two readings, uh, which are both about call. The call of Paul and the recall of Peter. Although we often don't call either of them call stories, we usually call the first one the conversion story of Paul and the second one the forgiveness of Peter. So looking at Paul first, what was he converted from if he was converted At the beginning of the story, he was a zealous, pious Jew who was zealous for God and for the law of God. And at the end of the story, he was a zealous, pious Jew who was zealous for God and eventually understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. So in fact, there is no conversion. He starts at being a Jew and he finishes at being a Jew. If we talk about this being the conversion of Paul, there's some kind of understanding in there that Paul stops being a Jew. And Paul never stops being a Jew. He is always a Jew and he understands everything through his Jewish framework. So while there is some conversion in how he understands Jesus, his overall worldview stays exactly the same in many respects. So it's a little misleading to call it, as it does in my uh, translation, the NRSV there, the conversion of Paul. Because he's not really converted. This is much more a called story. This is much more an encounter with the risen Jesus. I mean, Paul himself doesn't call it a conversion story. When he talks about this moment in his letters, this is his meeting with the resurrected Christ and his moment of calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So he didn't understand it as a conversion. He understood it, that he encountered the the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, and eventually out of that he was called to be an apostle. So it's not really a conversion story, it's a call story. 
And it's quite an interesting story because while Paul is going to Damascus because he had been, as Luke writes, I was trying to memorize it, but it hasn't stuck and I didn't write it down. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It's such a great line, isn't it? And in fact, it was the Greek-speaking disciples of the Lord. Apparently, the Hebrew-speaking disciples of the Lord were relatively unscathed in all of this. So it was the Greek-speaking ones. And while he'd approved of the stoning of Stephen, and he'd led, led his own little program against the Greek-speaking disciples of the Lord, cleared them out of the synagogues and, the, and out of the temple confines in Jerusalem, so they had scattered wasn't really what he was trying to do because while they were in Jerusalem they were quite confined but now they were out of Jerusalem while they were spreading mayhem and disaster everywhere he was a pious zealous Jew for the Lord and these and he understood exactly the consequences of what Jesus had been about probably more than anyone else at the time and more than most people throughout history he understood where this would lead and he didn't want a bar of that. So off he goes to try to clean up his mess. And on the way, there's often pictures of him falling off a horse, but there is no horse in this story. And uh, he's just walking to Damascus. And uh, he and his companions encounter the risen Christ, which shatters him. It leaves him literally blind, but also everything... Up to that point, how he had understood the law functioning kind of falls away. Now, uh, there is an optional second half of this reading, which I thought we were having, but I clearly didn't say that out loud to Laurie, so we didn't get it. Uh, but the story of Ananias and all of this. And Ananias, in all likelihood, was probably one of those Greek-speaking disciples of the Lord who had had to flee Jerusalem because of Paul. So he knows all about Paul and he is the one that gets called to go to Straight Street and to pray for healing. Without Ananias, there is no Paul. There's just a broken man, blind, in a room in Damascus. But because Ananias says yes and goes, well, we have Paul and we have a Gentile church, which means we have the Christian church as we have it today. It's a great tug of war between James the Great and some of the disciples and Paul about the direction that the church would go. And in the end, Paul wins. We are built on Paul, who we often think is quite legalistic. I had somebody come to me and say, I wish Paul wasn't so legalistic. The last thing, if you actually read Paul, that you can describe him as is legalistic. The fact that he wasn't legalistic was the problem. People really didn't like what he was preaching, which was, Jesus fulfills the law. We no longer have to be obedient to the law, the letter of the law, as he had been up to that point. He went from obedience to the law to living in the love of Christ, the love of God encountered in Christ. He became a man motivated by grace. Now that's not how Paul is used. 
but actually the people who use Paul in the ways that they do as some kind of legal, you must obey the law, I don't think you've ever actually read them. They've just read their favourite bits of them. So Paul wasn't converted, he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but also to preach a gospel of love. So how would he have described those words we began with? What kind of descriptions would he have offered? Well, Paul's call story is quite dramatic. And in many ways, the second story we heard was a lot less dramatic. It was much more every day. There are a number of big differences between John's Gospel and the synoptics, Matthew, Mark and Luke. They kind of those three follow the basic storyline, the storyline found in Mark. Matthew and Luke embellish that, add stories, take away stories, but essentially they have very similar sources. So you can kind of put the three together and see how they've changed what, what Mark started with. But John starts with he may well have known of those versions, but he starts with a completely different source and writes, a, a, in many ways, a completely different story. And so two of the big differences are that in John there is no Last Supper as there is in the other three Gospels. So in the other three Gospels there is a Last Supper where Jesus takes bread and says, this is my body, and takes wine and says, this is my blood. That is never said in John's Gospel. There is no Eucharistic moment. So Jesus gathers his disciples, washes their feet, has a meal, and then spends many chapters talking to them. But doesn't do the bread and wine thing. That's the first difference. The second is that in John, Peter doesn't deny Jesus. He denies being a disciple of Jesus, which might kind of sound a little pedantic. But actually, when you read the story that we just heard, we often read that as Jesus forgiving Peter for denying him. Actually, Peter doesn't deny him. He denies being a disciple. In Matthew, Mark and Luke, Peter says, I don't know him. In John, he says, I am not his disciple. Now, his sense of who he was, was he was a disciple of the Lord. He had left being a fisherman to be a disciple of Jesus. He had followed him for three years as a disciple. This was his teacher. And in that moment, he renounced that calling. He renounced his sense of who he was. So it's more correct to say that actually he denied himself rather than Jesus. And so we have this really interesting story which is tucked on the end of John's Gospel. John's Gospel is already finished. The verse before is the ending. It's very clear. This is the end. And then John or someone thought, ah, I think I'll add another story. Like an encore. There was too much clapping, so John came back for a last story, so to speak. And we're not given a time scale for this. We don't know whether this was two days later, two weeks later, two months later. 
we just assume it was a few days, but actually there is no time scale offered in this. It's just Peter and some other disciples are back at the Sea of Tiberias, and Peter says, I'm going fishing, which sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Except when you remember that he renounced who he was, a disciple. So if you're no longer a disciple, what do you do? You go back to the life that you thought you'd left behind. You go back to being a fisherman. He has gone back to his previous life. I'm going fishing. So he goes fishing with the others. And during the night they catch nothing. And then there's a man standing on the shore, which sounds a little bit weird to us, but actually that would have been fairly common. The fish merchants would have been going down there at dawn, have you caught anything? Haglin Price buying the fish. That was the point of it. They needed those people on the shore asking them if they'd caught anything. So they don't think anything of it. Somebody asking them if they've caught any fish. The answer's no. Bit of a bummer, no money. No food. But he says, cast the net on the other side. And they get this large catch. And there's all sorts of things written about the 153, but actually several commentators I read went, well, they probably would have counted the fish so they knew how many to, they had to sell. And who knows what the 153 really means. Like there may have been a meaning 2,000 years ago, but we're just making it up if we try to describe a meaning today. So it was just a lot of fish. A lot of fish in that net which didn't break. An abundance of fish. And they struggle with it. Jesus swims to shore. Oh, Jesus. Peter jumps in them, swims to shore. And they gather on around a charcoal fire. When was the last time we met a charcoal fire in John's Gospel? Anyone know? The last time the charcoal fire was there was when Peter denied who he was. They were around a charcoal fire outside the high priest's house and one of the people said, Are you not a disciple of Jesus? And he said, No, I am not a disciple. So he's back where he was around a charcoal fire. And on this fire there is fish and bread and Jesus says, Come and bring some of your fish. So when was the last time we had fish and bread? Feeding of the 5,000 men and an unknown number of women and children. So bucket loads of people. And that's a deliberate going back to that meal. It's not an accident. And so Jesus says, bring some of your fish when the meal is ready. He comes to them with the bread and the fish and he shares it. It's kind of like Luke's road to Emmaus, isn't it? That was the moment when he broke the bread that the disciples understood what was going on. It's when he is giving them the bread and the fish that they really know this is Jesus. They're a little bit nervous about asking it because it sounds a bit weird, but that's the moment. In John's Gospel, that's where the Eucharist comes from. That moment around the fire which goes back to that moment where Jesus feeds the 5,000 men and an unknown number of women and children. So what's that about? Right at the beginning of John's Gospel, John says that Jesus came to offer grace upon grace. 
and abundance and abundance. The first story is at Cana. We have somebody at Cana at the story. I think it's Nathaniel from Cana. Where they end up with an abundance of the best wine you can possibly imagine. Grace upon grace. We have this story where there are 153 fish, which is a huge number of fish. Grace upon grace. And then around this fire, Jesus offers them as much bread and fish as they could possibly want, which echoes the feeding of the 5,000 men and unknown number of women and children. Because at that meal, people ate as much as they needed. Now, who was at that first meal? Well, a lot of them were just poor people, day labourers, who lived in grinding poverty. Abundance was not something they ever experienced except an abundance of poverty. Never knowing where their next meal was coming from, never having too much to eat. And at that meal where they were gathered... Jesus gave them all they could possibly eat and there was food left over, an abundance of food, grace upon grace. Now, when the Eucharist first started, it wasn't in flash buildings with altar rails where each person got a little teeny bit of wafer and a little sip of wine. It was just an everyday, ordinary meal where all the disciples were invited and they shared their food amongst them. So the wealthy and the poor, the Jew and the non-Jew, well, that was a bit of a controversy and they had to struggle a bit with that one, could gather in one place and everyone could eat as much as they needed. It echoed the feeding of the 5,000. It was a radical, radical, different kind of meal where all the social dividers were removed and people gathered as one and experienced in the food and in the, the companionship grace upon grace and abundance an abundance of food, and abundance of fellowship. So in this meal here, this is where, well, Jesus recalls Peter, recalls him to his life as a disciple. I mean, it was all very well, Jesus being raised from the dead, but Peter had denounced, renounced his discipleship, hadn't he? He'd said, I am not a disciple. Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus is still, uh, Peter had still said, I am not a disciple. So this isn't so much a forgiveness as a recall to a life. And what is that life? It is a life living living on what Jesus had started, which was the reign of God's justice, the reign of God's compassion and hospitality and generosity, the reign of God's love. Grace upon grace and abundance. They get this, that they are now the ones who will live this out. Peter got that. If you read his letters, one of his greatest distresses was somehow in this meal, those social dividers were creeping back in. 
that somehow in this meal the religious dividers were creeping back in. Jews and Gentiles wouldn't meet. Those of Jewish descent and those of non-Jewish descent wouldn't meet in the same room, wouldn't gather for the same meal. The poor were being pushed to the edges and the wealthy were gathering around the table and eating their fill first and then allowing the poor to come in second. That was not what was supposed to be happening. Peter, Paul got that. This radical meal, which was all about God's justice of abundance, was being changed into something completely different. And that's been our ongoing issue throughout history, really. And if you go to England, you can go to churches where the wealthy went, and where the middle class went, and where the servants went, no longer all meeting in the same building. If you go to America, you can see where the white people went and where the blacks went. And if you were a black person and tried to go to a white church, well, you were not welcome. You had to go to another church, even, even in the northern states. Even in the northern states. We lost that radical edge that was as, as part of what we do here at the Eucharist. So both of these stories are about call, call to be disciples, but also a call to see the world in a very different way. We should have actually had a picture up for most of this. Sorry. There we go. Which takes us back to those first words. How would Peter and Paul or even the writer of Revelation. So that's just a straight quote out of the reading that Anne read us from Revelation. How would they suggest we understand those words of power and might? Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honour and glory. Well, in that reading, if we'd listened very carefully, it is the Lamb, the crucified Christ. So when we talk about power, where do we look? To the crucifixion. That is power. When we talk about wealth, where do we look? To the naked crucified Christ. That is wealth. When we talk about wisdom, where do we look? To the crucified Christ hanging on a cross. When we talk about might, where do we look? The crucified Christ. When we talk about honour, where do we look? To the crucified Christ. When we talk about glory, where do we look? To the crucified Christ. The moment of his glorification. How often do we think that? How often is that where we look? That was what Paul understood. That's what Peter was invited back into an entirely different way of understanding the world an entirely different way of living God's reign of justice so what are we called to what are we called to how might we live this out as we think about call and what those words mean, and what is it we do when we gather around this table in a few moments' time. 
Let's sit in quiet and think about that for a moment or two and then we'll have the prayers.